with the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Brian German. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to the Agnet News Hour today. I'm your host, Brian German, and we've got quite a bit to get to in today's show. Uh, later on, we have a conversation with Norm Groot from Monterey County Farm Bureau about how growers in the area have been impacted by the January storms, and we get an update on the rollout of Ag Order 4.0 and how that's impacting production. We've also got the latest episodes of the Agronomic Minute and Ag Labor Insights in just a bit. But first, here's Danielle Leal with a couple of reports, starting with information on the Food Safety Modernization Act. The Produce Safety Rule establishes science-based standards for safe production and harvest of fresh fruits, vegetables, and nuts. The rule provides standards for worker health, hygiene, and training, agricultural water for both production and post-harvest uses, biological soil amendments, domesticated and wild animals, equipment, tools, buildings, and sanitation, as well as the production of sprouts. Don Stuckel with the Produce Safety Alliance says ultimately these standards help keep poop off the produce we consume. When we talk about the systems approach, I think it's important to emphasize that we're looking for a source of a pathogen, a source of the hazard, and Produce Safety Rule deals only with pathogens. It doesn't deal with chemical risks. We're looking for the source of the pathogen, which is usually fecal contamination. And what we're trying to do is two things. One, keep fecal contamination off of the product during production and during processing. And if there is any fecal contamination that accidentally gets into the system, keep it from spreading and making a small problem become a much larger problem. Experts say the ag industry needs to educate people about the farm bill. A member of the ag industry says explaining the importance of a farm bill to all Americans is an ongoing process for various reasons. USDA's Rod Bain talks with Bill Stafford of CHS Inc. in this report. Understanding has grown over the years between all farm bill stakeholders that that particular piece of legislation has little success passing Congress as a standalone farm safety net and conservation vehicle without the inclusion of a nutrition title. Will Stafford of CHS Incorporated says this understanding is also important in educating new members of Congress about the significance of a farm bill. One of those areas is telling them that the farm policy and the nutrition side are married together for a reason and one does complement the other and strong farm policy policy is good for their constituents for having a good, abundant, safe, plentiful, cheap food supply. He adds farm bill education is also important to Congress, to citizens, to bridge an urban-rural understanding gap. Every election we're seeing less and less members that have a farm background, that have a rural background, and more and more urban members. So we as an industry need to do our jobs and reach out to some of these members and find where we have common ground. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Rod. And folks can find out more information on the current farm bill and the process of crafting the new one by visiting usda.gov backslash farm bill. Folks can also check with ag organizations to find out what their priorities are and what they're hoping the next farm bill includes. Reporting for Agnet West Radio Network, I'm Danielle Leal. Thanks, Danielle. In other news, symptoms of drought and flood can look similar in pistachios, but the trees are affected differently under each of the conditions. Cooperative Extension Specialist in the Department of Plant Sciences at UC Davis, Julia Marino, said that flooding takes its toll on pistachio trees by reducing the amount of oxygen in the soil. So the water displaces the oxygen and basically the roots cannot breathe, cannot respire. 
And since respiration is essential for any metabolic function, they stop to work with all the negative effects that the flooding can have. And uh, some of them can be, for example, like similar to the drought, reduce photosynthesis up to the like uh, reduce water uptake, early senescence and the decay of the root system. In this sense, for this reason, I, like it's important to understand like the physiological background of the trees to understanding what is more dangerous for one species with respect to the other. And the International Fresh Produce Association is now accepting nominations for the 2023 Produce Excellence in Food Service Awards. IFPA developed the program to honor the food service industry's most innovative produce performers, and there are nine different categories that are honored through the program. Nominations can be submitted through March 10th, and winners will be recognized at IFPA's Food Service Conference in Monterey, June 27th and 28th. Some of these selection criteria includes knowledge and use of proper fresh produce handling procedures, creativity in using fresh produce in concept development and menu design, and produce-related outreach or special events. This is the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. In today's National Spotlight, the Cattle Facts Outlook Seminar at the annual Cattle Industry Convention in New Orleans dug into expert market and weather analysis for the coming year. Prices and profitability will again favor cattle producers in 2023. The cattle industry came into the year with the smallest cattle supply since 2015, as drought caused the industry to dig deeper into the supply of feeder cattle and calves. While drought relief is up in the air, improvements are also expected to translate to moderating feed costs, especially in the second half of this year. Combined with increased cattle prices, producers, especially the cow-calf operators, will continue to see improvements in margins for the next several years. Kevin Good, Vice President of Industry Relations for Cattlefax, says beef cow cattle inventories are down 1.5 million head from cycle highs. A recent social media post called into question the quality and safety of beef purchased in American grocery stores. South Dakota beef producer Troy Hadrick and his wife Stacy are longtime industry advocates. Hadrick says the social media post originated in an unlikely place. It comes out of ranching is where it comes from, cattle producers. And you get a handful of these folks that they're either mad at the packer or who knows for whatever reason. And they will just spread this crap that the grocery store beef is bad. It's full of fillers. It's full of water. It's not healthy. It can make you sick. And then they tell you you should buy local from a rancher. Obviously, that's not an option for everybody. I don't think I know anybody that sells all of the cattle that they raise into the local beef market. In trying to promote their local beef sales, Hadrick says some producers are damaging the entire industry. It's ridiculous, one, that I don't care if you're trying to 
tout your own product, your own personal beef line. But man, the last thing you ever want to do is sit here and try and scare people about the beef at the grocery store because most people aren't going to pay attention to the details. All they're going to see is something, you know, well, I saw a rancher say that the grocery store beef is bad. And so I'm just not going to buy it. It's the farthest thing from the truth. And it doesn't do our industry any good whatsoever. The social media post showed store-bought beef with different coloring. Hadrick says there are valid scientific reasons that meat turns darker, and that does not affect the product's safety. All you see is some random picture. We have no idea how the beef's been handled, if it's fresh, if it's been frozen, if it's been out in the air, whatever. So a couple things that happen. One, the color of the meat isn't necessarily an indicator of anything safety-wise or quality-wise. You can take fresh, never frozen ground beef. And if you wrap it up and you put it in, say, plastic wrapping and you remove all the oxygen out of that environment, that meat becomes darker because what happens is oxygen interacts with that lean tissue. And that interaction is actually what makes that bright cherry red color that you associate with fresh beef. You can take fresh beef and you wrap it up in a clear plastic container and you're going to see it get darker, not because the quality is going bad or it's turning rotten, just the fact that you've you've taken it out of an oxygen environment. He says laws assure there's nothing in that package but ground beef. It, the package is labeled ground beef. It is illegal for there to be water added to it. It is illegal for any other fillers to be added to it. The only thing that you can add to ground beef is seasoning, and then it has to be labeled as seasoned ground beef. The only other thing you can do is if, if you're buying beef patties and it says beef patty, sometimes you can add stuff to that too. But if you're buying ground beef, then it has to be ground beef. Folks that claim that that's happening. I mean, if they got proof that that's going on, they should report it because it's illegal. For more of our coverage from the Cattle Industry Convention held this year in New Orleans, visit our website at agnetwest.com. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now here's Randall Wiseman with today's Livestock Report. Well, in today's Livestock News, the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show all took place last week in New Orleans, Louisiana. A big crowd was on hand. Cattle producers from across the country were in attendance. Of course, a variety of issues were discussed, one of those being traceability. With more on that story, here's Agnet Media's Will Jordan. Producers, experts, and industry affiliates gathered to discuss policy and directives for NCBA staff to focus on in 2023. Among other issues discussed, the recurring theme is implementation of more effective disease traceability for the cattle industry. While disease traceability has been around for years, updated technology has allowed for improved response time should an animal disease outbreak occur. Current metal ear tags offer about 30% accuracy in animal identification, lacking the efficacy of EID technology, according to Dr. Nancy Jackson, DVM. That number is actually like a cow social security number. The combination of 15 digits and numbers means it won't ever be multiplied again. And so it's just a way of knowing when we put it in that animal, that gives her an identification. And each time it is scanned across the state lines at the kill plant or whatever else. So it's a a way of knowing where diseased animals are where they've been, and what they contacted in between. So for animal disease traceability, that's what the identification is for. This is Will Jordan. Thanks, Will. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association during the convention last week did release their policy priorities for this year. The priorities focus on advancing animal disease preparedness, protecting voluntary conservation programs, and defending producers from regulatory overreach. 
According to the new NCBA president, Todd Wilkinson, the focus is to help create opportunity for America's cattle producers and fighting to make sure the federal government does not damage the industry. Now, one of the biggest opportunities to help cattle producers in the coming years is passing the 2023 Farm Bill with continued investment in our National Vaccine Bank to help protect the U.S. cattle herd. Now, other priorities also include protecting and funding EQIP, CSP, and other voluntary conservation programs that incentivize science-based active management of natural resources. NCBA also wants to protect the cattle industry from regulatory attacks under the Waters of the United States Erwotis Rule, the Endangered Species Act, emissions reporting, and more. Wilkinson added, we're laser-focused on reducing the risk of potential foreign animal disease. And the National Cattlemen's Beef Association also released their Today's Beef Consumer Report, and it shows beef demand continues to remain strong. Despite various challenges faced by the industry, consumers have repeatedly stated that they will continue buying beef in both the retail and food service settings. Compiling research from last year, the report also shows more than two-thirds of consumers reportedly eat beef on a weekly basis or even more. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. We'll be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German. And now for more of the day's featured segments. Today's Ag Labor Insights are brought to you by the Farm Employers Labor Service. Established by California Farm Bureau, Fells has been helping farmers comply with the labor regulations for 50 years. And with us today is Brian Little, Fells CEO and labor issue expert. And now, Brian, we're now five weeks into the new year here, and uh, with every new year comes uh, new labor rules and uh, updates to information that needs to be made available to employees. And in your work to try and help ag employers uh, be compliant with labor rules and regulations, uh, you've got those necessary resources available in a uh, pretty convenient form, right? We do have those available. Uh, every year, Fells publishes a product, uh, our laminated compliance posters, and a spiral-bound book that has all the postings that are on those posters in a more convenient format. We have five posters that cover all of the things, and they're laminated so they can tolerate being outdoors. And they cover all of the postings that an agricultural employer is required by various laws and regulations to make to their employees. Uh, there are five of them. Uh, they cover all subjects related to civil rights, workplace safety and health, minimum wages, and all those issues that you're required to provide postings to employers about. Again, the book is designed to be in a more convenient format and allow you to hang it from a nail or a string or leave it on the dashboard of a truck so that a crew working out in the field can have access to those postings. The important thing is that employees have access to those postings without having to ask somebody to see them. That's why they've typically been posted on a wall. The reason we went with the book is that uh, it's getting to be harder and harder the more postings we have to find a wall where you can put all those posters up. That was the general idea behind the book. All of those are available by going to fells.net backslash posters, You'll find an order form there that will allow you to make an order. We can accept a credit card on that page. 
And if you need help, you can call us at 800-753-9073 or email us at info at cells.net. And just as a uh, simple reminder, uh, this is information uh, that just uh, because you picked it up last year doesn't necessarily mean you're covered. These uh, these things need to be changed and, and updated uh, fairly frequently, right? That's right, Brian. The, the agencies update these postings uh, almost every year now. Uh, and in many years, we seem to continually have one or two more new postings. So if you haven't bought posters in a while... Uh, maybe even as little as two years ago, you probably need to buy some now because a number of the postings will have changed and there might be some new postings that you don't have covered. That's why we do these things every year, just to make sure everybody has all the postings that they need. And again, you can always visit fells.net for more information on a variety of California ag labor issues. In today's Agronomic Minute, brought to you by UPL, a leader in sustainable crop management solutions for California's orchards and vineyards. We're talking about almonds today with Cassie Reeser, Technical Services Manager for UPL North America. And now almond growers are uh, constantly facing a variety of pest and disease pressures and um, other issues in their orchard. And uh, so as we look to the coming season, uh, what are growers going to be looking out for now that we are hitting the uh, first part of February? Yeah, um, so in years past, almond growers have battled uh, bacterial blast and canker, which can be really devastating for an orchard, sometimes resulting up to 20% of yield loss. So growers should really be aware of cold and wet weather fronts that are coming in, which can result in outbreaks of the bacterial blast throughout their orchards. So um, under these conditions, the pathogen can multiply on the hosts, and then it can be disseminated by water, splash uh, to infect other cuts, leaf scars and buds may be infected on the almond, cherry or peaches and other plants as well. And pruning wounds and other injuries can also lead to infections. Uh, I mentioned canker also, and some canker symptoms to look out for would include elliptical lesions on the trunks uh, and the scaffold of the branches, as well as dieback of some shoot tips. And sometimes a gum is observed on the surface of the canker. And so a lot of that is going to um, entail close monitoring in the in the orchard and uh, paying attention to what the weather's doing. But uh, for growers who may unfortunately be dealing with bacterial blast, what sort of options or approaches are available uh, for helping to mitigate its impact and um, protect those trees? Yeah, well, recently uh, the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA and the California Department of Pesticide Regulation has granted and approved our Section 18 emergency exemption for the use of cassumin, which is a bacteriocide for almonds in 2023. And so what that means is that growers will need to add cassumin to their permit at their ag commissioner's office. The ag commissioners will then provide a Cal DPR label for the cassumin section 18. And finally, the ag commissioner can then provide use restrictions for cassumin. Uh, treatment options for bacterial blast include the use of cumin, cuprifix, and manzate. Um, they are highly effective tools for controlling bacterial blast, and uh, especially by targeting different sites of action to protect tree health and crop quality and yields. And cumin, in particular, works on the streptomycin and copper-resistant strains of bacteria. Now, in terms of um, timing for some of those, is there a uh, particular recommendation for when that might be um, most effective for applying? Uh, yes. So it's at uh, pet uh, during bloom or right before wet and cold fronts. 
Gotcha. And now for growers that might be uh, looking for some information on that or um, how they might want to attack bacterial blight in their orchards, uh, where can they go to get some more information? You know, they can go to uh, upl-ltd.com slash us um, and talk to your local sales representative. Well, very good. And again, this has been the latest installment of the Agronomic Minute, a weekly segment made possible through a content partnership with UPL. This is the Agnet News Hour, and I'm your host, Brian German. We'll be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German. Joining us today is Monterey County Farm Bureau Executive Director Norm Groot to talk about the three weeks of storms and uh, how that impacted production in the area. And so, Norm, I know there's been um, a pretty significant amount of, of flooding that's been uh, documented pretty extensively. But let's just start here with um, a baseline of, of what kind of impact those storms have had on the area. Well, we're still holding with our estimate of 20,000 acres impacted, and we're actually in the middle of a survey right now trying to fully assess all the damaged acres and what that dollar total might actually increase to. We had estimated 40 to 50 million, but it's probably going to increase from there. And we're getting a good response to the survey at this point, but we're going to continue collecting that because we still have standing water in many of the fields where the levees broke or water is just not draining away at this point. So it's hard to get a full assessment until all that water is gone and they can actually get in and look at damage to the fields as well as the infrastructure and what may need to be done to improve their levee situation. Now, in uh, continuing to assess uh, what the impact and and damage has been overall, what seems to be uh, the consensus or or what are you hearing from producers as to um, how the rain and flooding might be uh, holding back operations? Is there a rough uh, timeline estimate as to uh, maybe what kind of holdup there is to the season? I think what I'm I'm hearing at this point is everyone's expecting 45 to 60 days probably as the minimum time frame at this point for all the testing that they're going to have to do for food safety compliance. That, of course, depends on how fast the fields are accessible and, and dry out so that they can start doing that testing protocol. So uh, we are looking at some early plantings here in February that are probably going to be delayed until they get that process in place and and get those series of negative tests so that they can move forward with their first planting. But I think we should note, too, that we have a lot of fields here that were not impacted by flooding or standing water. And so a lot of those fields will still continue with their first plantings and can move forward with their planting schedules at this point. So it's hard to say what that's going to mean to the marketplace, but obviously with 20,000 acres impacted now, it probably is a little bit of a delay that we're going to see in those first plantings here in February and probably early March. And um, even though it seems like the state's uh, more often uh, dealing with drought conditions rather than flooding, uh, is there some thought now uh, going into the future and and maybe some potential uh, mitigating approaches to hopefully prevent that level of uh, damage down the line there? Sure. Well, that's been an ongoing issue here for multiple decades related to the Salinas River and the channel that it creates here. It is classified as a meandering river 
and is the only river in California at this point that is still privately owned. So landowners are responsible for maintenance and control of the channel itself, including the levees that run adjacent to their properties. And so over the years, it's become much more difficult to get the permits to do the work in the river channel as well as to the levees. And it becomes a very expensive proposition for landowners and farm operators to go through that process to just protect their lands in situations where we do have these high flows. And typically years ago, if you look at the way the river channel was maintained prior to 1995 and even somewhat after that, um, we did a better job of controlling and allowing for larger flows uh, simply by the way it was maintained at that point. But since we've had all these new permitting restrictions and very little work done in the river channel itself, um, when we get some of these flows, particularly like what we just saw in the last few weeks, it causes much more of a concern and much more of a problem simply because the river channel itself cannot control or, or handle the amount of water. Now, you noted a, um, a permitting process there as, as part of that. What, um, what's the challenge there as it relates to permitting and, and maybe getting some um, action on some more uh, maybe robust flood planning there? Well, the overall program needs permits from the Army Corps of Engineers as well as the Regional Water Quality Control Board here. And then we also, on an annual basis, have to get work permits from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And those have to be specified exactly as to what type of work is going to be done, vegetation removal or sediment removal or or smoothing the secondary channels, whatever the case may be. And so we have to go through this workload program of getting different permits and working with all the different agencies to ensure that we're, first of all, being environmentally conscious, which everyone is at this point. And second, we're doing work that actually improves the habitat in the channel by removing the exotic species such as the Arundo and and others that don't really belong in the channel anymore. So so it's become much more complicated, much more complex. And of course, everyone wants to protect the environment and make sure that the wildlife that's living and depending on the, the ecosystem of the river channel itself is protected. But we also need to look at how we're protecting the farmlands that surround that river channel and what that means to landowners and, and their expenses in doing this. Yeah, so uh, several considerations there. I can see um, how that might uh, present some challenges in, in getting everyone to agree on uh, maybe best practices and um, approaches to something like that. Sure, and I think that really comes down to what the different agencies that are involved here and the objectives that they may have, which don't necessarily always coincide with each other. And so we're managing sometimes conflicting objectives, trying to be as compliant as we possibly can, but also as compromising as we need to be to make sure that we can still get those permits. Sure. And um, even though the storms have caused quite a bit of damage in the area, uh, because of the last several years, it seems like um, really uh, overall, any water is good water, um, even with the challenges those storms have brought. Um, so now in your area there, what's um, maybe been some of the silver lining here with, with having that much water now? Well, it has put smiles on everyone's faces that we were able to capture a lot of water in our two reservoirs, and particularly in Nascimento, where we're currently hovering at 85 or 86% of capacity in that reservoir. So rose dramatically in the first 10 days of, of the month, which is what we need because we use that water to release uh, into the Salinas River channel so it can percolate down into the groundwater basin 
during our irrigation seasons. It also helped recharge a lot of our groundwater basin and helps move forward our objectives that we need to do for the Groundwater Sustainability Management Act and, and how we're going to implement that in the next 18 years. It just gives everyone a little more confidence that we're going to have enough water supply for this year as well as future years, but also allows us to look at those objectives and make sure that we're falling in line and staying on our, our track rather than worrying necessarily about drought, but we're also now worrying about how we're going to pay for all the projects to get us to that compliance stage in 18 years. Yeah, that's uh, certainly a big question and concern there looking ahead. And uh, we are going to take a quick break here and uh, come back in just a bit with more from Norm Group with Monterey County Farm Bureau. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German, and we'll be back in just a moment. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German, joined by Norm Groot, Executive Director of the Monterey County Farm Bureau. And uh, it's been a while since we've spoke about Ag Order 4.0 and uh, some of the implications there. So, uh, Norm, how has that rollout been going and um, how are growers adapting to the new expectations there? Well, it, I would say the rollout of Ag 4.0 has been a bit of a challenge. There's a lot of educational upside that needs to be done there as far as involving a lot of of farmers before that are now coming into uh, other water quality requirements that are going to be rather daunting, I think, especially for the smaller farms and and how they're going to manage that. So we're trying to still provide that education. There's a whole bunch of new record keeping that everyone has to start here in January of this year. And so it'll be interesting to see how that moves through the process in some of these smaller farms also. But we're still working on it, let's put it that way, and we're still hoping that we get some moderation through our appeal process with the State Water Board. But right now, I think what we're still looking at is a rather daunting process for everyone to manage and certainly not without cost. So it is going to be very challenging to start ratcheting down that use of nitrogen and not really have a good game plan or alternative in place so that we can continue producing the specialty crops that we grow here. And that appeals process, uh, what is, what's the hope there? What's, what's the appeal being based on? Well, the appeal process before the State Water Board really challenges a couple of areas of the Ag Order 4.0 that we felt overstepped the boundaries of what was originally intended in how irrigated lands programs are supposed to be managed and ultimately rolled out to growers. And one of those is the requirement to limit the input of resources into crops. And that means the nitrogen reductions that are part of Ag Order 4.0. So we look at it in the ag community as they can regulate what is coming off the farm, but not necessarily what goes onto the farm. And so there's a big distinction there that we're having a legal challenge with. And Uh, have brought that in part of our appeal to the state board. The other part of it, too, is requesting or requiring that all wells get tested for 123 TCP 
and that is not an agricultural chemical and seems a little far-fetched for ag properties to be doing that type of testing when it's really not within the purview of the ag order simply because the water board wants to find out how much that particular chemical is prevalent in groundwater does not necessarily mean it's an agricultural only problem. So we really question whether or not they have the authority to ask for testing or require testing for a constituent that really is not an agricultural chemical. Now, while that argument is being made and um, that appeal is being processed, uh, producers are still expected to comply with the order. But th- this is um, this appeal is an effort to try and potentially change some of those parameters, correct? Yes, correct. We have requested this appeal already immediately after the order was instituted in April of 2021. And so we're now coming up on two years of this appeal sitting before the state board with no action. And so we have not chosen at this point to pursue a stay or stop some of these requirements. So yes, everything is in effect at this point and growers need to comply fully with Ag Order 4.0. Very good. Norm Groot with Monterey County Farm Bureau sharing some insight on recent storm damage and how area growers are um, navigating Ag Order 4.0. Norm, again, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with us here today. Sure. Yeah, happy to help. Good way to get the stories out there of all the things we're facing here. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.